Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Real Estate Investing Club, the place investors go to learn tips, tricks, and stories from other investors in the field. If you feel we provide a value to you, go ahead and hit that thumbs up, share, whatever it may be. And if you'd like for us to cover a specific topic, let us know in the comments or reach out to us through our website. Today, we have a very special guest, so buckle up, grab your pen and paper, and enjoy the ride. Right, we are live. Axel, thank you for joining us today. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to uh, to chat about some real estate here. Love it. Um, to get us started, why don't you go ahead and tell everybody who you are, where you're from, and how you got started in real estate in the first place? Absolutely. So uh, my backstory, you know, I'll try and make it quick here, but it's it's pretty similar to uh, you know a lot of people that get into real estate. Right? I've been been a quote unquote entrepreneur forever. Um, sold anything I could get my hands on from you know, middle school up until now. So <laughs> um, that's that's the overall background. And the way I found real estate specifically was uh, in high school and and, uh, and through first couple of years of college, I would actually buy and sell used cars on Craigslist. And um, nice. so that was my nice little side hustle. That's how I was making money and, you know, trying to stay away from an office on the summers between school. So Ironically, um, that's how my uh, my partner right now got started in buying and selling used cars. So I didn't mean to jump in, keep going. No, that's great. I mean, it's a it's a solid business. <laughs> um, and so when I was doing that, I was like, all right, what can I buy and sell that's a little bit bigger than this? And um, you know, where's where's the next step, so to speak? So I started watching, uh, you know, HGTV in my spare time. I was watching all the house flipping shows, and I was like, all right, you know, that sounds like a pretty good next step. Um, a little bit, you know, more expensive than cars makes some more money. So I went out and got my real estate license. Um, you know, not that you need it to flip houses, but that was like, Hey, you know, I'm 19. I might as well get this. It's, it's cheap and easy to do. And I was living in New Hampshire at the time, which is, uh, one of the uh, easiest States to get your real estate license. And so I was like, might as well get it. So got that. And, um, and then, you know, the next thing I knew I was doing all this research online, trying to figure out how to flip houses. And I came across uh, rental property investing and, you know, the idea of buying a rental property and, you know, just receiving the cash on a monthly basis, kind of in perpetuity. Um, you know, that really intrigued me. So I was like, that, that seems like a, a better business model than flipping houses, which, you know, it came to realize the research is really just a job. And, um, <laughs> you know, I said, and, and the other part about flipping houses too, that concerned me was it's, it's significantly higher risk than buying a rental property, just in terms of the financing you need to use. Um, you know, typically how many, you know, the, the scope of the renovations is higher. And, um, there's just, you know, much more, ways in which it can go wrong throughout that process. So I was like, let me get into, you know, I'll buy a multifamily property, something small, and that's how I'll get into real estate. And, um, you know, a couple of years after that, when I was doing all this research, it took a little bit, but um, I bought a three unit property as my first deal. And uh, I used private financing to do that. And that was in college at the time. And, and that's kind of what kickstarted it. And that was three, four years ago. And, and now I own uh, just over 40 units of multifamily property. That's, um, pretty much entirely financed initially with private money uh, using the Burr strategy. And, um, and that number has been fluctuating over the last couple of years as I sell properties and, and, and try and get ready for the next step of my career, which is ideally, you know, buying these larger 50 plus unit multifamily properties. So that's kind of where I'm at now. Awesome. I love it. That is a, that's a great trajectory. So just to kind of recap real quick, you started, um, sounds like in high school, you were um, flipping cars. You just bought and sold cars, um, which is very similar to buying and selling houses, except for the risk is more and the reward is more on the house side. Um, so you started looking into that. Did you actually flip a house or did you, were you turned off by the, by the risk, um, risk factor there? 
So I have flipped houses and it hasn't really been a conscious thing that I've done. It's more or less been a deal, you know, kind of comes your way when you're, when you're just, you know, in the business and everyone knows what you're doing. And sometimes deals just come to you that say, Hey, this could work as a flip. So I, I flipped probably 10, 15 houses the last three years. Um, so, you know, not a, not a very large number. It's maybe been three, four, five a year. Um, you know, there's last year I did a little bit more, uh, but it's certainly not my focus. You know, it's something that happens. And if, if an opportunity comes up, great. Um, and something that I've done too is if I, you know, even small multifamilies, you know, I'll buy them with the intentions of holding them long term. But maybe, you know, the return on equity isn't there once I go to refinance or the cash flow isn't good enough to justify holding on to it. And the actual, you know, selling it and recapturing some of that equity makes more sense. So I, I flipped, you know, some two, three unit buildings. Um, that I originally intended to hold on to. So it's kind of been an accidental flip. So, but outside of that, no, I haven't, you know, consciously went out there and, you know, marketed to single family homeowners or anything like that. Gotcha. Gotcha. So awesome. So you got, you got started in cars, um, after cars, you wanted to move on to houses. You looked into flipping, wasn't your bread and butter and you found rentals, which is in my standard, the gold, in my opinion, the gold standard of um, being in real estate is having rentals. I love having them too. Um, and then you went on, sounds like you j- jumped right into multifamily. You started with a triplex, which is fantastic. Um, and since then, you've been just con- constantly growing over the past three or four years. Um, and you're up to 40 units now, it sounds like. Yeah, so 44 right now. Um, I, you know, there was a peak of around, it was like low 60s. I had you know, 60 something units. Um, this was about last year. And then um, you know, I started to, I started to overextend myself a little bit and I was, you know, I was nervous about how many projects I had going on at a time with, with private money. And, um, you know, I decided to scale it back. So I, I sold a couple of buildings and started, you know, scaling down the portfolio. And this is like late 2019. So, I mean, we're talking six to nine months ago here. Um, and it, it worked out, you know, I just, you know, COVID happened. Right. And, and next thing you know, there's, you know, I, luckily I haven't had tenants, you know, not a, not a large percentage of tenants, you know, not paying rent. But if that were, uh, if I was kind of operating the way I was, where I was taking on a lot of projects and stretching myself a little thin, that would have been a pretty stressful few months, you know, the last few months. So, um, you know, I caught myself getting a little ahead of myself, you know, getting a little out over my skis. So I wanted to tone it back. So that's, that's where I'm at now, though, is I believe 44 units is, is what the portfolio is at. Gotcha. And it sounds like your, your, um, overall strategy is the Burr method, um, by, I can never remember all the R's by rehab, refinance, rent out, repeat. Is that right? There's four R's, something like yeah, that. Yeah. It's a buy, buy rehab, rent, uh, refinance, repeat. I know it's like, you know, you, you typically forget, you don't usually say the words. <laughs> <laughs> it's just the overall idea of it. Uh, that's great. So, um, sounds like you're also focused on small multifamily. So not large, um, yet at least you, you may be going there in the future. Um, so I love it. You've had, uh, you've had a lot of great experience. We really want to, you know, get into the bread and butter of, you know, how it operates, how you got here. Um, so kind of start out and tell us, uh, first how you actually go about finding your properties. I mean, um, real estate, it's, it's a process. And at the very beginning of that process, you got to actually find these properties. So how do you go about sourcing them? Do you do digital marketing? Do you send out letters? Um, do you just work with brokers? How do you do that? Sure. So it, it's really, uh, I would say three or four main areas and it depends on what you, you know, what strategies you lump into, you know, a segment of that, but, um, it's really just a combination between relationships and marketing. And by marketing, I mean, you know, I do very little direct mail. Um, maybe I have, and, and I'll take a step back to my market that I buy in is a city in New Hampshire. It's called Manchester. 
and you know populations just over a hundred thousand people um, and you know that's not a very large market right so if I were to run a list of all the four to 25 unit properties as an, as an arbitrary number, you know, I've done this right. Um, with very little kind of filters on it. Um, you know, maybe just not having been sold in the last three years, you know, that list is maybe 500 records. Um, so, you know, there's just not that many people that own the types of properties I'm looking to buy in that market. Um, you know, which is a reason I'm looking to go out of state now because I've kind of tapped it out. Um, you know, and that's a whole other topic, but so I've done very little direct mail. Maybe I'll send a couple hundred letters, you know, quarterly uh, to some owners, something I need to be more consistent with, but that has generated some deals. Um, and it's worked pretty well. And it's multifaceted in how well it works. And, and that it does, you know, sometimes bring a deal to the table, but it also just puts you in front of a lot of investors in that market. Um, and, you know, the interesting thing about doing direct mail to multifamily owners, when you're trying to grow a portfolio is oftentimes you'll hit an owner that owns, you know, the building that you, you know, pulled the, the, the record for, so to speak as well as five or six other buildings in the same market. And, you know, a lot of the people that I bought property from, I bought multiple properties from and, um, which has been, which has been pretty key. So that's one element is direct mail. Uh, and then the other is text and email prospecting, which is relatively newer for me. So I'll find the owner, you know, I'll do some internet research here to find their email address, you know, I'll kind of troll through LinkedIn or, or, you know, do a Google search or look at their Facebook or whatever, you know, there's a number of ways to grab someone's email. And then I'll just send them an email asking if they're interested in selling. Um, and then the same thing with, with text prospecting. I'll reach out via text. You know, I'll skip trace the records and get their phone number. Email has been pretty good. Text is, text is like a, a coin flip, right? That's, I'm pretty new in that. So I shouldn't say I have definitive results. But email works pretty well. And then the other is really just being conscious about building relationships with folks who are in front of people that own uh, you know, multifamily property. Um, you know, and I could, I could talk about this for a while, but this is really how I find most of my deals. And it's funny, right? Because when you're doing single family homes, whether it's rentals or flipping, you know, if, if your seller is typically the seller of a single family home, you can reach those folks a lot easier with marketing. Um, as you know, the bigger the properties go, the more relationships become important in the lead generation process, right? So I'm like down in this four to 10 unit space, you know, so it's a combination of marketing and, and relationships will bring you enough deals to keep you busy. You know, as you go large, right, you go 50, 60, 70 plus, you know, that almost entirely becomes relationship based business rather than, you know, marketing based. Um, so I'm, I've struck this balance between using marketing and building relationships. And, and by relationships, I mean, building relationships with investors and just, you know, getting coffee with folks that own property and really just reminding them on a, you know, on a consistent basis that I'm looking to buy. So when, when they're looking to sell, maybe they know someone who's looking to sell, you know, they call me, um, building relationships with property managers. If they have an owner that's looking to sell, I'd, I'd love to be someone they call, um, you know, contractors, uh, lenders, you know, just folks that are working with people in the business a lot in different capacities, constantly reminding them that you're looking to buy is really key. So, so that's, that's probably gotten me like half my business is just through relationships. And, you know, without going too deep into this, I, uh, you know, one a quick story on how I've I found I think it was nine units. This was a couple of years ago. It was three three unit buildings, and it was this guy that did painting for me at the time. Um, you know, we, we haven't done business in a while. You know, he moved, but nevertheless, I wish he didn't because he was finding me deals. But uh, but he was just like he was painting the the units of a ton of investors' uh, properties in the area. And I just said, hey man, if you know you're painting a unit and you got an you know an older seller who's maybe looking like he's you know, or talking like he wants to get out of the business, give him my phone number. 
And um, he did that. And I, and I found multiple properties through that relationship. Um, so it's funny where it comes from. Right. And it's, you know, so for me, you know, long uh, to make this long answer a little bit shorter, it's been a few strategic marketing channels, um, you know, mainly email, text and direct mail. And then the other half really has just been through, you know, building conscious relationships with folks that are in the business. I love it. That's uh that's great. So um, it sounds like it's kind of 50, 50 relationships and actual active marketing. Um, and in the, on the active side, you do letters, email, and text. Um, and that's strictly two multifamily owners, uh, sub 10 units. Exactly. So, you know, the active marketing that I go out there and, you know, pay for, put time into, um, you know, the, the channels that you just mentioned are really, it's for four to 10 unit properties is, is really where I'm doing it. Um, and there is still success there. Like, you know, like I was saying, where a lot of those deals still come through relationships, especially in a smaller market, like when I'm in Manchester, where there's just not that many, there's just not that much inventory of those properties. Um, you know, you can pull a record of all of them and maybe it's 500 to a thousand names um, and, and actual addresses, depending on how you filter it. So it's, you know, when it's that small of a, of a pool, you know, relationships are going to be really important. Whereas if you're, you know, you mentioned you were in Seattle, right? I'm assuming that you will probably find a little bit more success marketing to those owners in Seattle because there's just a much larger pool to work with. So, so for me, I I've had to strike a balance between the two. Um, and you know, other things that I'm looking to do in the future, you know, maybe cold calling or, or some kind of, um, you know, content marketing with some kind of paid traffic piece to it. Um, you know, I'm personally just not convinced that that will work really well for those types of sellers. Um, but it's something that I'm looking, you know, looking into, but, but that, you know, those channels have kept me busy enough and given me enough deals to, you know, to kind of chew on. So, so it's been good. Yeah, that's great. And, uh, I mean, that is one of the main reasons that I started this podcast is to network with other investors and to remind people that we do buy multifamily and mobile home parks. So if you got one to sell, reach out to me. (laughs) Um, but okay. So letters, emails, and texts, um, and it sounds like you don't do any digital, which seems to be a, a pretty popular thing these days. Uh, but I guess if you're only focused on one market, um, one smaller market, it's it would be less effective um, because, I mean, there's just not as many people there. So um, great. So you, that's how you find your properties. You reach out to people. You network with other investors. Um, you do a little bit of active marketing. Once you find this property, actually before that, um, once you've identified the property, how do you go about deciding whether it's the property that you want to buy? Um, do you go on cap rate? Do you go on cash flow? Um, what are you looking for when you're actually buying these properties? Sure. So I use uh, two metrics to really quickly evaluate a property and you know underwrite it, so to speak, in, in 10 minutes or, or less. Um, and I, in my market, uh, price per unit is a pretty consistent uh, metric to use to quickly just see if a property is going to you know, be worth pursuing or not. And then I can quickly do a, a cap rate calculation. Um, so for me, you know, let's say that I, I get a call from a guy that owns a six unit property, you know, six unit properties in my market are typically selling for, you know, if they were to go on the MLS and they were stabilized and everything was, you know, all the CapEx was taken care of, the rents are at market, everything looks great to like a retail buyer, you know, typically between 80 and a hundred, you know, 105 grand a unit is, is the range depending on like bedroom count and, and what wow. the income is. Pretty cheap. So say that again. That's pretty cheap. Yeah, it, it is pretty cheap. Uh, it's funny, right? You know, you live in Seattle. I live outside of Boston, right? That, that seems insane to us. <laughs> but, um, but that's typically where those, where those properties sell for. 
Um, you know, and if they're 80 grand a unit, they're probably one bedroom units with lower rents. And if they're 105, they're probably three bedroom units with higher rents. So, you know, I know when I'm buying, okay, I got to be between 60 and 80 K unit. When I buy, maybe I put five, six, seven grand in a unit. And then I, you know, I buy a, a building at 60 K unit, put seven grand in, you know, I'm at 67 K unit. And then at, um, you know, once you go to refinance, it'll praise at 80, 85 grand a unit. Right. So that's how I look at things, you know, on a, if I'm, if I'm going to look at a deal quickly, um, and then, you know, it's simply, it, it's similar to looking at a, uh, a single family house that you might be looking to flip, right? You take what the after repair value is, and then you just subtract your repairs, you subtract how much money you want to make. And, uh, and there's your offer price. So that's pretty much what I do with those. And if I want to look at it a little bit further, um, then I can look at it on a cap rate basis. So, you know, I'll take what I believe the stabilized rents would be. Um, I'll just divide it by two, which, you know, is a 50% operating expense ratio, uh, which is a pretty safe number in my market. Um, and then I'll get the NOI and then I'll just divide it by what cap rates I've been getting in that marketplace. So in my market, you know, depending on the street in the neighborhood, it's anywhere from a seven and a half cap to a nine cap if you're in a tougher neighborhood. So oh, wow. I say, all right, you know, this, this market's an A cap. Um, you know, the market rents on a yearly basis are hundred grand, 50 grand is going to be my NOI, divide that by the cap. And that's what I would guess, you know, my offer price should be roughly around because I know that when it appraises, appraisers are typically going to use a 35 or 40% expense ratio in my market. So that difference, I'll know I'll have some buffer there. And, um, and that'll get me in at, you know, 80, 80% of market value, somewhere in that range. That's like, if I want to look at it in like 10 minutes, right, I can, I can do yep. those calculations. And then I know, Hey, you know, it's telling me that I can pay 400 grand for this property, but this guy wants 600. It's probably not going to be worth my time to, to give him a call and, and really just even pursue this. Um, and then if, you know, there's, if those numbers are close, all right, then we'll, you know, I'll go in further and actually get expenses and really look at the rents and see what they are and, you know, further hone that down. I like it. There's a, there's a lot of things that jumped out to me actually. So um, for, for one, it sounds like you use 50% operating expense ratio. We do 40, um, but 50 sounds more safe. <laughs> and yeah. so you use 50% um, OPEX and then you try to buy at a cap rate at around eight to 9%, it sounds. Yeah, exactly. Wow. That's and, really good. And, um, I, and I forgot to mention there too. I'll just jump in real quick. So let's say, you know, it's in a neighborhood where I think the cap rate is eight, you know, that's when an appraiser would give it. That's what a retail buyer would pay. Um, you know, when I do my analysis, maybe I'll do an eight and a half or a nine cap and there's an extra little buffer there. And that, and that really ensures that I'm getting in a below market value here and that there's going to be meat on the bone when I you know, add the value and, and bring everything up to, uh, up to a stabilized level. Absolutely. You have to, you have to build in your own, um, safety margins per se, yeah. um, when you're looking at properties. Um, okay. That's, that's, uh, that's really interesting. So you use, Cap rate and um, rental values. How do you go about actually finding um, the comps for rents? Um, do you use Rentometer? Do you just pull up Zillow? Kind of do a, a spot check. So it's it's funny, right? It's like I, I can't even remember this point since I've been in such a small market for so long. You just oh, after you just while you're like, <laughs> these are the rents, right? Um, yeah. But it's but but it's interesting because I'm now I'm trying to move out of state and. Uh, you know, because I, I can't stay busy up in such a small market there. So I'm like having this problem right now. And and the way I'm doing it currently is I'm using Rentometer. Um, I use Craigslist and what I do with Craigslist is filter down based on the same bedroom count. And um, I'll just go to the map and I'll, and I'll try and narrow it right into the address where I'm looking. Um, 
And then I'll ask for referrals for like, you know, property managers in the area. You know, in my current market, I ask my property manager if I'm unsure about what uh, rents I can get for a unit. I say, you know, are you managing buildings on this street or in this area? You know, oftentimes, since, you know, they manage a lot of buildings. So oftentimes they'll be like, yeah, we're managing, you know, one, two blocks down. They're getting 1200 for their two bedroom. You know, you don't have a dishwasher in your units. You probably get 1100 Um you know, so that's the other way I lean on my property manager. But when you're starting out, obviously, you don't want to bug, you know, your property manager, especially if you haven't done any business with them, they're probably just going to get annoyed. So, you know, I would rely heavily on on web research, right? I use so, so rentometer is great. I, I do rely on that. I do find that their that their rents seem to be high. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in every market I look, that's the case. And I sometimes I'll, you know, for uh, just so that I can see what it says about my my home market, you know, Manchester, right? I'll go look at what it says, um, you know, I'll put in one of my properties, what I'm getting for rent and I'll see what it says. And it's like, your rent's extremely low. And I'm like, no, I, I know that's market rent for, <laughs> for my building. So, you know, so I'd be careful with rentometer, play it towards the the lower end of that, of that range. And you'll probably yeah. be safe and then cross check it with other folks in the market and, you know, maybe Craigslist or hot pads or Zillow, depending yeah. on what site has a lot of properties in that market. It's funny you said that because I've, I've actually emailed Rentometer and I asked them like, hey, can you guys reduce your prices by just 10% even? It's yeah. just, you're a little bit high for what, and, and, I mean, we we market nationally, so we get properties from all over the place. And I've never, I always double check Rentometer's numbers and I've never found it to be 100% accurate, though it does give you a good range. And so if you veer towards the the back end of that range, it'll, um, it'll be safer that way. So Yeah. And um, I think another thing too with Rentometer is... And, and I shouldn't say this because I, I don't know where they're pulling their numbers from, but it seems like they pull it from what a lot of the asking prices for rent are in the area, as well as, you know, maybe what things are actually leased at, um, you know, and it's, it, it'd be similar to if you're pulling, you know, comps from Zillow and they're using what the asking prices of all the nearby properties are. You know, that's not what they're selling for. And just right. someone in an apartment, a guy can ask $1,700 for his unit. Maybe it's only a $1,500 a month unit. Um, so I say that with like an asterisk, right? Like I'm not sure, but it seems like when I look at their maps, they're using like listings to kind of populate that information, which, you know, could probably skew it upwards. Right. Yep. So rentometer, if you are listening, we love you. Um, just reduce yeah. the prices. Just You're doing you. a great job. We need you, you know, because yeah. <laughs> don't leave a great don't frame leave. of reference. So, <laughs> um, great. So, okay. So that's how you analyze. Um, and the next step in, in, you know, taking on a property is finding money to buy it. It sounds like you use private equity. Um, how do you go about finding those private investors? Sure. So I, I use a lot of uh, private money from folks that aren't in real estate. Um, and, and I can further clarify that too. So without diving too deep into this story, I did an internship in college where I, I uh, interned at a, an angel investment group in, in the same market that I'm buying in now. And it was just, you know, 10 guys, 10 wealthy guys who were investing in startups. And I just did a lot of the administrative work, you know, arranging the meetings and everything like that. And uh, I met a guy there who, um, he did some real estate lending on the side, certainly wasn't his like core business. It wasn't a structured business, but he worked with a couple of investors and he made loans at, you know, 10 to 12% interest. So he was, uh, actually one of my early, um, you know, investors or lenders is the, is the better word. So he was one of my early lenders. And I basically said, Hey, look, if I find a deal that looks like this, would you be interested in lending on it? You know, despite the fact that I'm, 21 years old and haven't done this yet. And he's like, yeah, you know, if it looks like this and it's actually a really good deal and I'll run it by a couple people. Yeah, we'll talk about it. And, um, and that was how I found, you know, the first lender that I really worked with. And as time goes on and you do more deals, um, 
you know, just be intentional about finding lenders. You know, if you do a deal, put it up on LinkedIn or Facebook or Instagram and say, you know, hell of a deal. You know, these are the numbers. You know, I, I, you know, thrilled to offer my investor on this deal, my lender on this deal, an 11% annualized return. And um, people are going to see that number and say, hey, you know, if this guy's done a few of these, he probably knows what he's doing. I'd like to speak with him. So the way I found him over time is communicating what I've been doing in my business, like in a conscious way. You know, not, you know, I'm not bragging about like what I'm doing, but mainly just, you know, putting up some content and having conversations with people in the market, you know, talking about what kind of deals you're doing, um, you know, what more or less kind of what the end results of them have been and uh, what the end result has been for the investors that have, have invested in them on a lending capacity. So, so that's really what I've done. And I've broken down finding lenders into, into three main categories, right? You either have high income uh, professionals, you know, a doctor, a lawyer, um, someone like that who's making a, you know, a boatload of money. Stock market doesn't really do it for them. Um, and they want to invest in, in real estate, but maybe they don't want the hassle of owning real estate. So why not lend on real estate? Um, or you have, you know, and then you have the, the business owners who are also making a lot of money, but again, their focus is elsewhere. They, they don't want to be in real estate, but they like the idea of having some exposure to that and earning some above average returns. And then other folks in real estate, uh, maybe, you know, successful brokers or other successful investors, um, or, you know, former investors. You know, I, I worked with a guy who, um, he sold his portfolio. Unfortunately, not to me, I was a little late <laughs> to that. Um, but I met him and he said, yeah, I just, I just actually sold a bunch of buildings. I'm sitting on this money and I don't really know what to do with it. And I said, well, do you want to lend? And he's familiar with the whole process. He understands private lending, understands that. And he's like, yeah, you know, why, why not? That makes a lot of sense. Uh, so I worked with a guy that, you know, who was a little bit on the older side, he was in his late sixties since sold all his real estate. He understood the the business, understood the game. And, um, he lent on a few deals and then, you know, but it's, it's really, it, it's not like you can do this and that'll, that'll get you lenders. You just have to, you know, you, ha- you need a lot of at bats. You have to talk about your deals. You have to talk to a ton of people and you have to be really intentional about telling the people that you meet with what you're looking for so that they can go out and find it for you. Right. It's the cumulative effect of all your interactions with pretty much everybody that you're meeting in the day to day. Yeah, exactly. And that brings it back, uh, back to relationships where you talked about earlier. Um, you find your deals through relationships, you finance your deals through relationships. Relationships is definitely a, uh, or real estate is definitely a relationship business. Um, and so it all comes together with the people that you're interacting with every single day. Yeah. And it doesn't even really need to be that hard either. Right. So I'm, I'm working with private lenders. So, you know, individuals who maybe don't have a company that, that they're lending out of, right. It's a less formalized structure and they're more negotiable, right? So you got private money and they got hard money. And I've used hard money multiple times as well. Um, and hard money might be easier for a newer investor because, you know, you can just Google hard money lenders wherever you are and you'll find hard money lenders and, you know, their, their requirements are a little bit more structured and a little less negotiable, but, you know, that's an avenue to get into the business as well. Um, so private money is a little bit better. It's a little cheaper, a little bit more flexible. You know, it, it's the same thing as negotiating with an individual, right. Then, than a company it's, it's two different things. But you know, if you, if you do want to find lending to take down that deal, you can use hard money and that's a little bit easier to find. Yep. Yep. And I've used, uh, I've used hard money quite a bit in my career as well. It is, uh, it's a little bit more difficult. Um, if you have private money, definitely go that route, but, um, it's, yeah. it's, it's an option. If you, if you need to take it down, jump on hard money, it's there for you. Exactly. Um, so we're kind of at the, the last of the R's, uh, you, well, I guess you haven't gone through rehab, but, um, I'm going to, I'm going to skip that one because it sounds like most of them that you're working on are, are relatively stabilized. Um, yeah. so we're just going to jump right to refinance. 
Um, I mean, refinancing is rel- is kind of uh, self-explanatory, but um, if there are any, I guess, what do you do when you go about refinancing your properties? Um, what's the process you use? Is there any specific bank that you feel like gives you better rates? Um, you know, and then once you get that money, is there, do you do, a, I guess you're not selling them, so you can't do a 1031 exchange, but um, kind of take us through the process of the, the final R of refinancing. Sure. So refinance can be, it can be tricky, uh, especially if you're newer uh, to real estate and maybe you don't have, so I'll take a step back and describe my borrowing situation, which is a little wild, you know, so I'm, I'm 25 years old. I've been doing this full time for a couple of years now. And even before that, I was working as an agent to kind of pay my bills while I was trying to get it off the ground. So my tax returns are just all over the map. Uh, (laughs) You know, my debt to income is crazy. I don't have that consistent W2 that you know, every lender that's going to sell their loan off to Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac like needs to see. So I don't fit in any of those boxes. So, you know, even on a three unit building uh, where you can get 30 year fixed rate financing on it, I typically don't qualify. So I've been forced to go out and use local community banks and credit unions to, to, to refinance on the back end of this process. So, you know, my terms and my, and my debt typically looks like, you know, 20 to 25% down, you know, so really the term would be 75 to 80% loan to value, you know, rates in the, in the mid to high fours, which is higher than what you can get, you know, on a 30 year fixed rate loan. So I'm paying a little bit more in interest and 25 year amortization periods. So it's a little bit more expensive than that 30 year fixed rate, you know, pretty Fannie Mae debt that's in the threes in terms of an interest rate. But I just don't qualify for that. You know, I've tried, I've tried, I've tried, I just don't. Um, so I've, I've had to go that route. And it's actually been a blessing in disguise because doing refinances um, with commercial loans and commercial products from local banks is just a much easier process than working with a lender where you have to check a number of boxes in order for them to sell the loan off. So that's typically how I write, uh, how I go about refinancing my properties. So, you know, other pieces of this process are, you know, you, you really have to be mindful that the appraisal, you know, the appraiser and the appraisal are like, like the biggest part of this entire process. You obviously have to buy right. You have to do your numbers right. You have to, you know, rehab at a, at a, at the number that makes sense. And you have to, all of that you got to do. Right. But that's all kind of in your control, more or less, you know, the appraisal is not in your control. You can control <laughs> it to an extent, but there's still an element of it that's out of your control. So, you know, for me, I've really focused on doing my best to get the appraisals where I need them to be. So I, you know, when I do an appraisal, I, um, you know, I bring the appraiser like way more documentation than I know any, any other investor does like an itemized list of all my costs with the, uh, you know, or my itemized list of, uh, upgrades with their associated costs, you know, what I've done to the unit, uh, in the building. And I'll literally like write out a story of what the deal was where I found it, what the seller situation was. Why did I buy it at such a low price? Because you're going to get this question every single time you do this. Well, you bought this at 200 grand, you know, you only put 40 grand into it. Why do you think it's worth 300? Like I, you know, and you've got to have an answer for that. Right. So I say, you know, I bought it from a distressed seller. It was a distressed situation because the seller and his partner co-owned the building and they had a falling out and they needed to liquidate. So that's why I'm buying it at 200 K, you know, and this is what I did to the property. This is how much I raised the rents. This is how we increase the tenant profile, um, you know, and then just really tell a good story, provide evidence of what you've done, and then also provide comps as to what you feel are good comps, right? And then don't be, you know, don't pressure the appraiser and say, oh, this is like the perfect comp. Like you got to like, you got to use this one as like the main one. Just 
provide them the information that helps your case and let them do their thing and just be pleasant throughout the process. And, and, you know, that's helped me get the numbers that I need in appraisals. Um, because if a number comes, comes in low, you know, and maybe you have to bring cash to the table and maybe it's a substantial amount, 10, 20, 30 grand, you know, for the sizes of deals that I'm doing that I've been talking about, that's pretty substantial. And if you don't prep for that, it can really, you know, it can be, you can find yourself in a tough spot, especially if you don't have the money in the bank. So, you know, those are the things that I really prioritize on the refinance. Um, and a lot of that, you know, becomes easier with time and, and repetition. But, you know, I think those are a couple of a big tips is, you know, local banks are great when you're doing these refinances, especially when you're doing a volume. Um, they can just, you know, they can be really flexible on the terms and the programs and everything they offer you when they keep that loan in house. And then, and then don't be lazy when it comes to the appraisal, you know, do a ton of work to help that appraiser give you the number that you need. I love it. So you work with local banks and then you, you really, you know, you put in the effort to build a picture, to paint a picture for the appraiser. Um, it sounds like you go into incredible detail with, with the rehab that you did, um, the, the comps that you think are um, apropos to the property. Um, and you really help him understand, you know, take him along the journey that you went through when you purchased the property um, and, and rehabbed it and now um, are being reappraised. So I love hearing that. <clears throat> Um, so this is, uh, we try to keep this, this show to around 30 minutes. So I'm going to move us along here just a little bit. Um, I do want to hear just one experience from you. I love to hear, um, you know, we all know real estate. It's a, it's a, it's a roller coaster. You got your ups, you got your downs. Um, and you know, it's just, it's just part and parcel to the game. So take us to one of the lowest periods that you had, um, so far, and then, you know, tell us what was the main lesson that you learned from that experience? Well, yeah. And I mean, I have the perfect scenario. Um, <laughs> I didn't even, like, I didn't know this question was coming, but, but I, but there's one experience I've had and one deal that I did that was like a complete masterclass seminar on how not to do a bunch of things. Uh, <laughs> so the first flip that I tried to do, and this has really turned me off a of flip since then. And I only do them if it really makes a lot of sense was a foreclosure. Um, it was a, it was a foreclosure duplex in a, in a really great town in the seacoast of New Hampshire. And the deal itself just needed a ton of work. And like, I just tell every investor, like, if you're going to do your first deal, make it one that doesn't need that much rehab, because that's really where you're going to lose your shirt. If you don't have the experience and don't know what you're doing. So the rehab went way over budget. It was just over my head in terms of what was involved. Um, and a bunch of things that were, you know, kind of out of my control happened where like, while we were under contract, the pipes burst, you know, this is a Northeast in the winter. So I had a bunch of mold in the basement when I took over. Um, and the, the first contractor I hired was stealing materials and, and that was a mess. Second one I hired was doing six jobs at the same time that, you know, I, I always ask, I say, is this, how many jobs are you working on right now? Because speed's obviously important with these deals. Oh, I got nothing going on right now. I can work on this deal. And it was like a referral from like a trusted investor in my network. So I was like, all right, this will be good. Turns out he was doing six jobs. You know, a couple of his guys quit. He was spread thin. He was only at the job site once or two days, you know, once or twice a week. So I was in this project for almost, well, I was in it for a year. It took me a year and a half to sell it. Lost a bunch of money. It was a complete pain in the ass. So as for what I learned from it, right? <laughs> um, now when I'm doing a rehab that, you know, is larger in nature, like I've just realized that like I need to be a babysitter. Um, you have to be a babysitter. Like it's crazy. It doesn't matter how experienced your contractor is and how well you trust them you, you got to be there. You got to be there multiple times a week. And if they're not working out, you need to move on quickly. I moved on quickly from my first guy and I moved on, or I, I didn't move on quickly from my first guy. And the same thing with my second guy. You know, it wasn't until a third contract that I had it done 
and in hindsight, right, I should have said he's only here. He's only been here, you know, once or twice a week for the last three or four weeks. Like we're moving on next. Um, and the way I paid my contractors at that time too, was we separated all the portions of the job. You know, I pay half the front half when it was complete. Now I do like 25 or 30% up front, you know, and then 30% in the middle and the majority at the end, I parcel out the payments a little bit more. But at the time, you know, we had done a number of jobs together. I was like, I'll pay you half up front, half when you're done. Like, it's not the way to do it. You got to pay so little up front to keep them incentivized to keep coming to the property. And God forbid you have an issue like I did. If you have to fire them and walk away, you're, you know, you're not, you don't have to chase as much money or you're walking away from not as much money as if you pay half up front and they only get 10% of the job done. And then you're like, find yourself in a paralyzing situation. So when you're doing rehabs, especially large rehabs, you, you, you just really need to be, it's, it's a, it's a job. It's an active job. You have to be there. You have to babysit and you have to be mindful of how you're structuring your contracts with your contractors. So I would say that that's probably my big learning experience is just a masterclass and how a renovation <laughs> can go wrong. But, um, a lot of great, a lot of great lessons learned on that one for sure. I could talk about that a whole podcast if you wanted me to, but <laughs> I'll stop it there. <laughs> no, I, I love it. And, uh, and, I mean, it, it really rings true for me because um, uh, people who have not done flips, uh, your contractor is going to be the linchpin to that experience. I mean, sure, you got to buy it right. But um, if you're not there on site, they, I guarantee things are going to go wrong. And, um, yeah. and if you're not there, there's no accountability. Uh, I like that you, you know, the big lesson that you learned was do a little bit up front, more in the end. Um, I've had a problem doing 50-50 as well. And so... Um, Great experiences, great lessons learned. Sorry you had to go through it, but now you come out the other side and it sounds like you've got those lessons in the bag. So you're not going to make that mistake again. Exactly. And you're going to make a mistake if you're investing in real estate at some point. Hopefully it's not too big. Hopefully it's not as big as mine, right? But you know, that's, you learn from them. So it's, you got to look at it as paid education, right? That's how I view it. Absolutely. Um, last question on kind of your experiences or more your advice, um, for people get, you know, in real estate or in, re- in investing or just getting into investing, um, if you were to go back to the Axel, you know, who is just finishing flipping cars, just getting into real estate. Um, and you were to give that guy one piece of advice, what would it be? Um, become extremely focused on what you want and why, um, I spent so much time learning about flipping and wholesaling and rental property and, you know, just all the different things you can do in real estate and shiny object syndrome is a real thing. And I got caught up in that. Um, you know, it took me a bit to realize flipping wasn't for me and, you know, the rental property investing was, and then I spent so much time trying to buy condos and single families before I was like, let's just, you know, even a small multifamily is a better rental property than a single family, especially in my market. So I spent so much time just, you know, planting shallow seeds, if that makes sense, rather than planting less deep seeds, which is really what you got to do. You got to be like, this is exactly the strategy that I'm going to follow. These are the people that I need to talk to in order to make this, you know, make this process easier and just put your blinders on and just do that and just commit, commit to doing that for a longer period of time, seven, you know, nine months a year. I'm not going to try and flip houses. I'm not going to try and wholesale houses. I'm just going to look for multifamily properties. And once I did that, you know, I started to get some traction. Um, but I, I spun my wheels probably from age 19 to 21 and then even after I bought that first property, I was still like, oh, maybe I want to flip houses. You know, a $40,000 check will help me buy rentals. And uh, it does, but it's harder to find the rentals when you're doing that. So um, I, I would have just been a little bit more clear about what I wanted and, and uh, what needed to be done to get there. 
Absolutely. And I loved uh, one thing you said, you said, put the blinders on. And that is, um, I mean, I've had shiny object syndrome or whatever that thing is. I've had that happen to me multiple times, um, especially when you first get into real estate. There's, there are so many different ways to go about doing this game. I mean, there's, there's different asset types, different strategies. You can loan, you can buy, you can wholesale. Um, and when you just get into it, you just want to do it all. But that's not the way to do it. Um, choose one strategy, put the blinders on, and go towards it because that's the way that you actually get good at that one thing. Um, exactly. Awesome. Well, Axel... Thank you very much for coming on the show. Um, I appreciated it a lot. I mean, I'm sure everybody listening and watching did as well. Um, we all need things in our lives. You're no different. You've already given us a lot. So if someone were to bring something to you, what would you want to receive? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, well, first of all, I appreciate you having me. Second of all, uh, to, to answer that question directly, I mean, it's just, it's deals. Who doesn't want deals, right? Um, you know, I, I, I I like to work with folks that are newer investors and kind of show them how I find deals um, and in the processes that I follow. And, um, and then I basically just teach folks how to do that. And if you find a deal you want to bring with me, I'm happy to partner on it with you. Happy to pay you for that deal. Um, Learn something, make some money. And as I'm looking into new markets, specifically a couple of markets in Alabama, a couple of markets in Northern Florida and, you know, really the Southeast as I try and buy larger properties, I love help in doing that. And if anyone's listening to this in New Hampshire, probably maybe a handful of any, but uh, always looking for deals up there as well. So feel free to reach out to me. I'll show you how I find deals, give you the playbook. And then once you do find one, if you want to you know, wholesale it, if you want to take it down yourself, I'm happy to be a resource for that too. Um, you know, so, uh, and I can, if, I don't know if you'd, uh, if you have a segment for this, but I can kind of share how people would connect with me and if they did do that. That is my next question. Mouth, if, if somebody did want to get in contact <laughs> with you, what would be the best way to do that? Sure. So you can find me on Instagram. It's at multifamily wealth. Um, and then, or you can just search Axel Ragnarsson. You'll find me on there. Uh, you can email me off there too. I mean, my, my, uh, my emails in my profile, you can find me on LinkedIn, Axel Ragnarsson on LinkedIn. And I also host a, a podcast myself. It's called the multifamily wealth podcast. And we talk a lot about uh, multifamily real estate, but there's a few episodes in there too, about, um, you know, smaller multis and single family investing as well. So any of those channels will be the best ways to reach me. Awesome. I love it. Um, so you guys heard it. If you want to get in, in contact with Axel, um, he's on LinkedIn, multifamily wealth. Was that it? The multifamily wealth. Yep. Multifamily wealth. Um, or sorry, he's on Instagram, multifamily wealth, and I will put the, the link to LinkedIn, his LinkedIn profile below. So if you want to get in contact with him, you can reach out there. Great. All right. Again, Axel, thank you very much for coming on. We appreciated all the wisdom you shared. Um, for everybody else, we look forward to seeing you guys on the next episode. Awesome. Thanks again for having me. Thank you for joining us on the Real Estate Investing Club. If you feel we've provided value, we would appreciate it if you hit that thumbs up, share with your friends online, whatever it may be. If you'd like to share or partner with us on an investment deal, we are always looking for quality projects. Go to www.therealestateinvestingclub.com to get in contact with one of our partners. Otherwise, I hope you guys have an absolutely fantastic day and I look forward to seeing you on the next episode. All right, before I officially sign off, I have a quick announcement to make. If you're interested in becoming a passive investor in one of my deals, my own company, Kaizen Properties, is looking for capital partners for our upcoming projects. We invest in what are known as recession-resistant assets, mainly self-storage facilities, mobile home and RV parks, and industrial properties. 
If you're interested in investing and would like to learn a little bit more about my company, our investing criteria, and some of the previous projects we've done, go to the Real Estate Investing Club podcast at therealestateinvestingclub.com and scroll all the way down to the bottom of the page. Click on the Invest With Us button. That'll pop up the investor form. Fill that out, and we will reach back out to you as soon as we can. Or if you prefer a little bit more of a personal touch, you can reach out to me at gabe at therealestateinvestingclub.com. So really, that is it. Again, it was a pleasure hanging out with you guys during this episode, and I look forward to seeing you on the next episode.